uh, India and China have had a long history of bilateral relations with each other. Though the economic ties between both countries have been healthy, but diplomatically and militarily, both countries have gone head to head against each other on many occasions. Recently, both the countries locked horns in the ba- Pangong region of Ladakh. This conflict is still ongoing, with a number of casualties reported on either side. To understand the underlying causes of this conflict, we need to look back at history and evaluate why this conflict arose. I am Pradeep Krishna, an undergrad student at the Jindal School of International Affairs. I'm Arun Khuller, an undergraduate student of the Jindal School of International Affairs. Joining with us today is Mr. Karmaniya Thadani, who is a JGU alumni and was a gold medalist in the MADLB course offered by JSIA. He was also a co-author of the book India-China, Negotiating Spaces in the Narrative, and the founder of the think tank, uh, the Citizens Foundation for Policy Solutions, CFPS. So, Mr. Karmani, the first question for you. The main areas of Indo-China conflict are the regions of Aksai Chin in Ladakh and Arunachal Pradesh in Northeast India. Can you tell me, tell us more about background of these places? Okay, so firstly, thank you very much for having me on this podcast. It's very nice to interact with one's alma mater. And uh, especially, you know, it is very desirable that we have a frank and honest conversation about uh, important strategic affairs like these, wherein, you know, uh, test thumping takes the place of nuanced discourse, actually, in the media and elsewhere. So uh, also I noted that, you know, in your introduction, you mentioned something very nice. You actually said that, you know, we need to look back at history to understand this conflict. So it's very, you are absolutely right, because history is fundamental to the understanding of international relations. All international relations theories, whether it's realism, liberalism, constructivism, they all seek to explain the relevance by pointing to historical events in the geopolitical realm. Now, before I answer your questions, uh, you know, I've got your first question. I've understood what you want me to, you know, answer. But before I answer that specific question, I would like to make an important clarification with your permission. If that's fine. Yes, perfectly. Fine. Yeah, sure. So, you know, basically, I realize that, you know, a lot of people who may be listening to this podcast, especially people who may not be from a humanities or an IR background, they may have, you know, very strong sentiments about certain things. So at the very outset, let me say that I am not here to hurt anyone's sentiments. And, you know, in this, when we're having a discussion on a sensitive issue like this, I would like to just very briefly touch upon the idea that, you know, when we're dealing with India and China, two nation states, which have been at loggerheads, to use your language. Now, they've got head to head, as you mentioned. Now, in that context, let's try and understand that, you know, as an Indian citizen, where do I see the role of national patriotism and hyper-nationalism? It may seem like I'm digressing from the basic discussion, but I think this is important to clarify right at the outset so that, you know, whatever I say and whatever you guys may say in the course of this discussion is taken in the right context by our listeners, by our audience. So in that context, very quickly, I'd like to mention that, you know, fundamentally the idea that, you know, the world, that humanity is one, despite all our diversity, and national borders are man-made, it is a reality. 
and therefore obviously you know any sentiment of nationalism should not trump the basic sentiment of humanism till that point it is a fair point having said that there are also people who contend that you know national patriotism in and of itself is completely irrelevant on the other hand you have people who actually become hyper nationalists who actually you know believe that you know fanatical zeal of nationalism is what is desirable so both these positions to my mind are incorrect uh, fundamentally yes the nation state is a reality it is our larger home it is where we live and we all depend on the nation state for our driving licenses for the roads we use for a lot of facilities that we avail of you can be critical of the government of the day you can hold it accountable but to write off the very idea of the state and pretend that you live in some borderless world which doesn't exist is actually deluding yourself so that is one fundamental point i'd like to make that you know just as your own house is your home even the nation state is your larger home which you want to protect from intruders which is necessary that you uphold the sovereignty of so this is one aspect hypernationalism on the other hand prevents resolution of conflicts it dehumanizes the other and it and it actually doesn't serve the purpose of your own nationals as well by accentuating conflict so you know this basic clarification i wanted to give because you know a world without borders with a capital in the central african republic with no human conflicts even within nation states you have conflicts between provinces over resources and lights so to say that we don't believe in any nation state and you know we are all human uh, that is also not very practical so having said that i'll but equally i will not take a hyper nationalist position i will be critical of hyper nationalism and this in this discussion hopefully we'll understand how hyper nationalism can actually be more problematic uh, you know because it accentuating conflicts which can be resolved doesn't help either side and it drains resources so uh let's you know basically start with the background on excitin and arunachal pradesh now basically to understand this background one part is of course examining the historical facts but how do you assess these historical facts will be through the realm of international law international law is the you know language used by nation states to express the validity or otherwise of their claims now there is a lot of discussion about whether international law is relevant at all that it is flouted very often it doesn't have very strong enforcement mechanisms now even national laws can be flouted very often people can get away with it blah blah but doesn't mean that it is not required or relevant and international law for example we saw it in the nauru fisheries case where in a tiny country like nauru could secure its rights in the international court of justice and as indians we all remember the recent example not so old example of kulbhushan jadhav whose life was saved by international law true pakistan could have technically violated it but they had filed other cases against india as well related to water sharing and other things so they decided to to at least some extent respect international law in that context and he is at least not dead despite being denied consular access initially which was violating international law on pakistan's part so after this background i'll come back to your question you've asked me basically about aksai chin and arunachal pradesh and the background of the conflicts in these places so let me basically very quickly run you through these conflicts now very very fundamentally if we look at aksai chin now aksai chin is basically a part of the ladakh region 
which was until very recently in the Indian context, a part of the erstwhile state of Jammu and Kashmir, which has now been split into the Union Territory of Jammu and Kashmir and the Union Territory of Ladakh. Now, fundamentally, if we go back in history, uh, we'll have to go to the 1840s. So, you know, and 1830s, in fact. So, fundamentally, the Sikh empire of Raja Ranjit Singh, Maharaja Ranjit Singh, they actually conquered parts of Jammu and Ladakh and other areas. Ladakh was integrated into the Sikh confederacy. Now, and the Jammuite section of the Sikh confederacy, the Jammuite province, if you say so, was led by a general named Gulab Singh. And Gulab Singh and the Tibetans actually fought a war in which actually the Tibetans initially beat the army of the Sikh Confederacy, the contingent of the army of the Sikh Confederacy being led by Gulab Singh. Now, a little more on this. So from May 1841 to August 1842, uh, a war was fought, which was called the Dogra Tibetan War or the Sino-Sikh War. And Tibet was a part of China at that point of time, as it had been for many centuries. We'll come to you know the further details of Tibet vis-a-vis -vis China later. I'm sure you'll ask me a question on that. So we'll come to that then. But fundamentally for now, this particular war was fought and Tibet was under the suzerainty of King China. And Jammu was under the suzerainty of the Sikh Empire. So both the suzerains Jammu and Tibet fought a war under the respective suzerainties of you know, the Sikh Confederacy of the Sikh, uh, sorry, the Sikh Confederacy of Punjab and King China. And in this particular war, the Tibetans actually emerged victorious and they actually, you know, conquered certain, they advanced and they actually managed to secure, you know, lay for themselves. They besieged lay, they entered Ladakh, which had been a part of the Sikh Confederacy and they besieged lay. After that, you know, the Sikh forces hit back. And then a treaty was signed between the Chinese and the Sikh Confederacy in September 1842. And basically, they accepted certain frontiers. Fundamentally, after that, what interestingly happened was that the British defeated the Sikhs in 1846. This is after Raja Ranjit Singh was no more. The British actually invaded Punjab. And this, therefore, brought that entire territory of you know Jammu and Ladakh and even Kashmir within the British control. And therefore now, and Gulab Singh in fact, uh, you know, was given, uh, was made to start a dynasty, the Dogra dynasty, which ruled over Jammu and Kashmir right up till 1947. So that was a princely state under the British crown later. First it was a sovereign with subsidiary state till before 1857. Now, after the British actually took over Ladakh, the British commissioners actually made several attempts to meet with Chinese officials to deliberate over the issue of the border. Because the border, they had agreed the Sikhs and the Chinese that so they'll not intrude over the de facto border, but the border was clearly defined. Then they really came to an understanding, the British and the British and you know their allies, the Dogras, on one hand, and the Chinese on the other. That there was a customary border which was natural in nature, which was not deviated. Now, after that, you know, history kept taking its course. Uh, there was a British request for a joint commissioner to demarcate the, you know, Kashmir boundary in 1847. 
Then again, the Chinese said, no, you know, the frontiers have been sufficiently and distinctly fixed. And, you know, they referred to, uh, you know, a certain line, W.H. Johnson was a civil servant with the Survey of India. And he came up with the Johnson line in 1865. And that put the region of Aksaitin in the princely state of Jammu and Kashmir. This line was never presented to the Chinese authorities. And therefore, and it was presented to the Maharaja of Kashmir, who said that, yes, yes, I accept it. But then, despite that, uh, the British government overall said this is patently absurd, and they did not really accept it. Thereafter, you know, the Chinese position when it started deteriorating, uh, you know, the British said that, you know, this line was not feasible, not suitable. And, you know, another line came up, it was the Ardag line, and even that was not properly accepted. Then we actually come to the 1890s. By now, you know, after the revolt of 1857, Queen Victoria had declared herself to be the Empress of India. The Indian princes who had accepted a deal with the British were no longer sovereign with subsidiary powers, but they had accepted the sovereignty of the British crown and they submitted to it. So now what started happening was the Chinese started showing keen interest in Aksai Chin in 1899. And the British actually proposed a revised boundary which put Aksai in Chinese territory. And this line was suggested by George McPartney. And at this point of time, the British accepted, okay, this is Chinese territory. And thereafter, what happened was that the Karakoram Mountains formed a natural boundary and the British borders up to the Indus River watershed. So this line was presented to the Chinese. So now after that, you know, after this George McCartney line, Basically, one Mr. Sir Claude MacDonald presented this to the Chinese, which showed excitement in Chinese, Chinese territory. But the Chinese did not object to it. They did not even react to it positively or negatively. So the British took it as Chinese acceptance of a certain line, which was known as the McCartney-MacDonald line. And this is the line that India, till date, succeeding from the British, recognizes. Having said that, you know, from at different points of time, the British, even without consulting the Raja of Kashmir, kept changing the map and kept showing this particular, you know, region of Aksaijin, sometimes within Indian territory, sometimes partly in Indian and partly Chinese territory, partly wholly in Chinese territory, depending on their equations with China. In 1927, for example, they actually showed the Johnson line, which had been rejected, and instead of the McCartney-McDonald line. So at different points of time, they kept changing the line, and that has led to the ambiguity that exists even today. But the Chinese did blunder by not rejecting the McCartney-McDonald line when it was presented to them historically. Now, you know, this is a basic background. Now, very quickly, what is the Indian narrative? You know, what does the current Indian state say about our claim over excitement? Uh, the Indian claim over this is fundamentally that, you know, basically a natural frontier, a mountainous frontier, which was accepted initially also in some discussions, that by international law can be accepted. Examples can be cited of this that, you know, the permanent court of international justice, the precursor of the ICJ, upheld the validity of traditional boundaries in many cases. Uh, you know, uh, also, you know, uh, it can be said that in the award or in the island of Palma's case, in Palma's case, it was said the delimitation of territorial sovereignty can be done on the basis of natural frontiers. 
So India has rested its case that you know the Sikhs and the Chinese in 1846, their vague understanding of national boundaries was solidified by the McCartney McDonald line, and that should therefore be upheld. But the Chinese say they never accepted any of those lines. They never reacted to the McCartney McDonald line also. So therefore, uh, you know they cannot accept this. So this is the fundamental problem with respect to the excited region, wherein you know the British kept arbitrarily changing the maps when they sensed that there could be Russian interference, when they sensed they need the Chinese support possibly against the French, whoever. They would just you know arbitrarily keep doing things which were not very clearly defined. So this therefore becomes a bone of contention between you know India and China. But this is not really. It exciting was not fundamentally really that big a bone of contention historically. Uh, it became a bone of contention towards the 50s and 60s for other reasons, which we can discuss later sometime. I'm sure you'll ask me about the 62 war, so we'll talk about it there. And uh, you also asked me this question about Arunachal Pradesh. So very very quickly, you know, if we are talking about Arunachal Pradesh, what happened was that. You know, uh, after the Anglo-Burmese War from 1824 to 1826, British India and China gained a border at that time in 1826, and therefore it became a necessity to actually define that border. And you know, therefore the representatives of British India, China, and Tibet attended a conference in Shimla in 1913 to 1914 and drew up an agreement, you know, which was to define the certain borders that existed. Now. It is very important to note that Tibet was a vassal state, or accepted, you know, the suzerainty of China. It was not a completely sovereign state even at that point of time, even as per the Tibetan authorities, even as per the then Dalai Lama, and so on. So, the three representatives met, and the British negotiator Henry McMahon he actually drew a line, a boundary line. And which actually is the line that India till date recognizes, the McMahon line. And you know the Tibetans actually in the discussions came around to accepting that particular line. However, very very importantly, the Chinese did not accept this line. So in this context, the Chinese said that hey, you know Tibet is our vassal state; it's a suzerain state. The Brits themselves, the British India itself, invited the Chinese for this particular negotiation, and without the consent of China, British India cannot finalize this line. And the Chinese representative was in fact absent when this particular line was finalized, and later they rejected it. Now it's also very important to note that the British had in 1907 signed the Shimla Agreement. Sorry, not the Shimla Agreement. They signed the Anglo-Russian Convention with China in 1907, which actually said that you know no agreement with Tibet will be acceptable without Chinese consent. So therefore, you know this particular agreement, from the standpoint of the Chinese, was not valid at all. They felt that the region of Arunachal Pradesh was a part of Tibet. Maybe the Tibetans were okay with you know handing it over to British India and you know finalizing the line that demarcated it as such, but the Chinese did not. So this is basically you know their you know position, the Chinese position, and 
India's argument has broadly been that you know uh, a vassal state could conclude international agreements with third states, and you know there is there was the knowledge and consent of the Chinese state to some extent that the Tibetans were also invited to negotiate. Egypt and Bulgaria, for example, had you know resolved treaties with foreign governments, although they were both under Turkey's authority, for example. Bulgaria had at the Hague Peace Conference of 1899 ratified a declaration, you know, be, even though Turkey had not ratified it, and they were they were under Turkish suzerainty. So these examples are cited by India to basically argue that you know a vassal state could have entered into a such to such an agreement. What makes the Chinese position strong from their end is that you know, in a vague sense, you say that okay, a vassal state. Despite being under suzerainty, can enter into agreements. But here, Britain had already accepted in 1907, you know, in their deal with Russia, that they will not enter into any deal with China, with Tibet, without the consent of China, which, as per the Chinese, was violated by the British. So fundamentally, this is what the conflict over Arunachal Pradesh is all about. I know this may be a little technical and a little boring. But the fundamentals are very interesting. That you know, this is what has led to this very serious conflict that continues to take human lives, primarily of soldiers. Fortunately, not of civilians today. But yeah, so this is basically the answer to the first question that you posed to me. Thank you for that. Uh, so, in the summer of two thousand twenty, China mobilized its troops in the bordering regions of Uttarakhand in the Barahuti district. Uh, can you tell us the significance of this place, and why do you think this place was unnoticed? Okay, so yeah, I'm glad you've asked me this question because you know Barahuti is very often overlooked. You know, people actually tend to think of the conflict between you know India and China only in Ladakh and Arunachal Pradesh, and maybe sometimes even Sikkim. But Barahuti, the region of Barahuti, is very important. In fact, after independence. Even before we could have a frank conversation about, or not could, even before India and China sought to have a frank conversation about Aksai Chain or Arunachal Pradesh, Barahuti actually cropped up. So this is a very interesting point that you have raised, and uh, this is something that deserves to be, you know, given more attention. So, and you know, it was in the news, though not sufficiently, when the Goklam standoff was on. You know, there was a Chinese transgression, if we were to use that word, if we were to be neutral, not use the word incursion. There was a Chinese transgression into Barahuti. So, what is the deal with Barahuti really? Now, the deal with Barahuti fundamentally is that, you know, this is again, you know, related to Tibet. In fact, now you know it is perceived that Tibetans are anti-Chinese, and you know they have no conflict with India, and they look to Indian support in their supposed struggle for self-determination. But if we were to actually look back, Barahuti is a conflict wherein Tibet and China had actually stood together, and there was ambiguity vis-a-vis this matter. So you know the Chinese have been claiming Barahuti since June 1954, after India's independence, and notably the Chinese did not even know the exact location of Barahuti while claiming it. So what exactly happened in July 1952? Uh, you know the intelligence bureau. Those days there was no raw 
IB was all that there was. So there was a note of the IB which stated that the Tibetans, you know, since the end of the 19th century had been establishing a customs post at the Hoti plain which fell in the Barahuti region. The British had got them to remove that post, but again in the 50s they had re-established that post and the IB note said that, you know, the Indian government, sovereign Indian government, because we were independent by then, should remove the Tibetans, otherwise they might really claim that territory. Now, what happened was that, if you remember in this recent standoff in the Galwan Valley that we had, you know, which relates to Aksaitin in some form, I'm sure we'll discuss that later. Uh, if we are discussing this particular aspect, I'm sure you guys remember the statement that Prime Minister Narendra Modi made just after the Galwan Valley clash, in which he said that, you know, the Chinese have not succeeded at making any intrusion within India. You guys remember that? Yeah, yeah. Yes, we do. Yeah, so I mean, that was a major talking point, and you know, the Prime Minister was criticized for having said that, so on and so forth. Uh, we can discuss more about that later. But on this point, interestingly, the Uttar Pradesh government at that time said, because Uttarakhand was a part of Uttar Pradesh then, as we all know. Uh, so the Uttar Pradesh government at that time actually said that no encroachment had taken place in that area. That, you know, the Chinese themselves didn't clearly know what Marahuti was, whether it fell in Tibet or not. But because there was a customs post and it must have been reported and it was discussed in India, the Uttar Pradesh government said, no, there's been no intrusion. So the Chinese said, hey, if there's been no intrusion, you yourself are saying that, that means that this region actually belongs to us. So after that, when, you know, a negotiation actually started to happen, uh, between India and China on this particular issue. Interestingly, there was no negotiation for a long time on Aksaitin or Arunachal Pradesh. And had there been one, a lot of things would have been averted. But on Barahuti, there was a certain negotiation. And in that negotiation, what happened was that the Indian negotiators, they named six passes, saying that these passes are actually, you know, belonging to India. But they did not delineate other locations on the border. So China further strengthened, you know, used this opportunity and claimed that numerous areas, uh, you know, also including the plain of Barahuti in Uttarakhand, actually belong to China. So then after that, in, until 1958, this, you know, negotiation went on. And then finally, you know, they said, the Chinese said, let's have a joint local inquiry. India refused the joint local inquiry because they felt that, you know, this way, the Chinese who don't even know the exact location of Barahuti, they called it Wuji, they were saying it's north of Kunjunla. They didn't even themselves know the exact location of the place which went in India's favor that you don't even know and you're claiming it. Therefore, India didn't want the Chinese to actually come for a joint local inquiry and actually get the details of, you know, where Barahuti exactly falls. Now, Barahuti falls in the Tamuli district of Uttarakhand. And yes, like in Arunachal Pradesh, like in Aksaitin, this place also from time to time sees certain transgressions. Especially noteworthy is the one in 2017 when the Goklam standoff was on. So, yes, India's central sector, it's called, you know, uh, there is the Balahuti Laphthal Sangmachala claim by China, in which they claim, you know, parts of Uttarakhand and even parts of Himachal Pradesh, 
you know, Barahuki falls within the Chamoli district of Uttarakhand, part of it even falls in the in Himachal Pradesh. So this particular region is claimed by China. And, uh, you know, there have been issues, there are small Hindu shrines over here. The Chinese have reportedly in their transgressions pulled down these shrines. And because the border is not demarcated, it's naturally demarcated. You know, the ITBP, the Indian Indo-Tibetan Border Police does not carry firearms. But, you know, in 2016, the Chinese had entered with firearms, allegedly. Thereafter, also, they've been reported, you know, transgressions have been reported in 2017 and 2018. And, you know, in 2013, the chief minister of Uttarakhand had said that 37 incursion attempts have been made by the Chinese in Barahuti. So, you know, Barahuti is not something that we can take completely lightly or completely neglect, even if it doesn't usually see as much violence as, you know, other regions perhaps do. Uh, we cannot completely neglect that, you know, even this area is, you know, in contention. There is a conflict over this area. So that is important to note. As much as it is equally important to note that the people of Barahuti, the residents of Uttarakhand uh, in that part, they identify themselves unquestionably as Indians. They do not think of themselves as Chinese at all. In fact, you know, till the 62 war, a lot of the people uh, of that region, especially from the Bhutia community, they used to trade through those passes that were, you know, actually present in that region. And after the 62 war, things, the dynamics did change considerably. That's another matter, you know, that needs to be considered in this. But yeah, this is the broad picture of uh, Barahuti. And, uh, you know, it's also, you know, uh, the part of Barahuti where the Chinese intruded initially, you know, in 2017 is called the Kalapani region. So that is, I think, you know, some information about uh, the Barahuti, uh, you know, conflict. And uh, the Indian side also cites the 1816 agreement between British India and Nepal, which locates the Kali River as the western border. And therefore, you know, Nepal is also, you know, on the border of this region along with China. So there is, you know, a complication here wherein in more recent times, Nepal has been flexing its muscles and trying to claim what has undisputedly in this context. There's no bias in saying there's been Indian territory. So this is broadly the picture I can give you about Barahuti. And in that region, the Chinese state in cahoots with the Nepalese state, especially when Prachanda was in power, when the Maoist government was in power in Nepal, they were using it to strengthen Indian Maoists in this region as well. Though in Uttarakhand, Maoists do exist, they've not managed to make much headway. But there was an attempt to actually support Maoist activity also, as per India, you know, by China and Nepal when it was under an unfriendly government. So, yeah, I think uh, that sufficiently answers your question about Barahuti. Yes, that surely does. Thank you for the information that you have provided. Now, okay, moving forward, one major player in the India-China relation has been the region of Tibet. So, after the failed 1959 Tibetan uprising, mm -hmm. the Tibetan government, including Dalai Lama, fled to India. Since then, the exile government of Tibet is stationed in India. China has often accused India of using Tibet as a bargaining card when things get worse between India and China. What do you think India's stance should be regarding okay. Tibet? So before I share with you what I think should be my stance, 
uh, I would like to, you know, just again draw attention to you referred to the Dalai Lama's flight to India. So let's try and understand what this flight is all about and what the context of Tibet is. I told you earlier while discussing Aksai Chin and Arunachal Pradesh that, you know, we will have to understand the relationship Tibet has with China. This is very important because our own border disputes as regarding Aksai Chin, as regards Arunachal Pradesh, even as regards Bharamuti, as we just discussed, they all are rooted in how India perceives Tibet. Because India's direct border, you know, Tibet, India does recognize Tibet as a part of China, always has. You know, there are myths that people entertain, that's another matter. But other than that, Tibet is where the part of China with which India has a border. You know, India doesn't have a border with other provinces of China, at least as much. So, you know, understanding the Tibetan issue is very, very crucial to, you know, making a fundamental understanding of this particular important relationship between India and China. So, uh, the basic thing is that, you know, Tibet had, you know, this history of a unified Tibet starts with the rule of Songstan Gyanpo, who lived from 604 to 650 AD, and he founded the Tibetan Empire. And thereafter, the dynasties governing Tibet and the dynasties governing China, they were in constant conflict. And, you know, the Tibetan Empire reached its zenith, uh, you know, in the 780s and the 790s, when they even had parts of India, they had parts of Burma, they had parts of Afghanistan, they had parts of Bangladesh, even parts of Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan. The Tibetans had built up a big empire, which even includes what are parts of China today. However, after what happened was that, you know, subsequently, you know, from the Chinese, actually, the Chinese empire, starting with the mid-14th century, you know, they basically took control over Tibet. And since then, it has been so, it has been a legal arrangement. And, uh, you know, the Dalai Lama, the institution of the Dalai Lama was given recognition, you know, by, you know, the Mongols, rulers of China. Altan Khan, actually, a descendant of Kublai Khan, who was in turn a descendant of Chinggis Khan, he gave Sonam Gyatso, a certain Lama, the title of Dalai Lama. The institution of the Dalai Lama also has to do with the Chinese state, for that matter, the Chinese monarch. And thereafter, uh, you know, in 1720, uh, with the assistance of the King Emperor, Tangzi at that time, the institution of the Dalai Lama was taken to be the official political authority of Tibet. And the, he was the ninth Dalai Lama at that point of time. And therefore, the Chinese, to say that Tibet has had nothing to do with China, as many Indians imagine that Tibet was a completely independent country, that, you know, China just randomly invaded uh, in the 40s and 50s, that is not exactly true. So, in fact, one can even point out that, you know, in the process of understanding, you know, the historical connection, between Tibet and China, that 
you know the great wall of china also passes through tibet and the great wall of china was you know a symbol of chinese authority that dates to the times of ashoka that dates to centuries before christ and even at that time the chinese empire considered tibet as its part so you know very very historically that way tibet can even claim parts of india saying tibet can claim ladakh tibet can claim parts of central asia but in international law we follow the principles of state succession that you know if a colonial entity has left the case the borders that they have made actually will stand or whatever and there is also the principle of oti posidatis juris that you know which basically gives a permanent constitutional form to states as they are even if the form of government is changed otherwise we can have all kinds of outlandish claims and the chinese do make some outlandish claims for that matter like over the south china sea but in this context yes tibet has been a part of china and the world at large even the dalai lama today in 14th dalai lama his holiness also says he wants to restore tibet's autonomy within china something similar to what kashmiri political leaders are saying about restoring jammu and kashmir's autonomy within india but the claim of the dalai lama is also not complete secession from china as many people imagine both are tibetan who would desire that as well and yes the chinese state has been extremely repressive in tibet uh, we'll come to that too but the basic background now Uh, since i mentioned the principles of state succession and oki posidat is juris let's quickly understand that you know uh, i'm sure we are all familiar with the historical figure lord burzen who was responsible for the partition of bengal right yeah yeah right so now the deal is that lord burzen from 1899 to 1905 he said yes tibet is recognized as chinese suzerainty but that's really constitutional fiction he didn't you know care about it too much he didn't respect the authority of beading too much and in 1903 he sent an emissary to lhasa to investigate you know russian involvement you know the russian intelligence what they were doing in tibet so on and so forth following that in 1904 an anglo tibet convention was signed in which it was said that tibet will deal directly with india instead of via china and that the chumbi valley would be given to india but after that what happened was that within two years the british government in london withdrew this moved by the viceroy in india not the viceroy the viceroy in india lord burzen lord burzen so in april 1906 the anglo chinese convention was signed in beijing as per which the chumbi valley was returned to tibet and chinese suzerainty was reaffirmed so in the anglo chinese convention of 1906 the british so british india actually accepted chinese suzerainty over tibet subsequent to that in 1907 the anglo russian convention was signed in st petersburg which i referred to earlier also which explicitly said that the british will not set up any negotiations with tibet without the approval of the chinese government the argument that the chinese used to reject the mcmahon line demarcating arunachal pradesh as well so therefore for anyone to say that and if someone argues that you know the british were colonialists and we don't like them and why should we care about what they said well the fact is that we got our independence thanks to the indian independence act 1947 our criminal laws and a lot of other laws we can amend them but we do rely fundamentally on you know a british structure we can change it as much as we like 
nor can we go back to the days of monarchy or some other you know imaginary golden age of the past when we had monarchy and we didn't have modern institutions so fundamentally the independent indian state is a successful state to british india there's no two ways about it british india in fact joined the un and the indian state took over from there even before independence india as a british you know colony had joined the un so we cannot you know whether we like it or not say that we do not care about the positions that british india had taken for that matter and when people express solidarity with the dalai lama you should understand that the dalai lama too accepts that tibet has been a part of china which is not to say that the chinese are blameless at all there is a lot to understand about you know the chinese under but then what happened was that you know the british actually didn't keep their commitment through the anglo russian convention of 1907 and they continued to deal with tibet you know directly whenever it suited them they even gave some trade privileges and concessions to the tibetans that you know independent india also inherited but independent india wanted to have good relations with china so we actually gave up on those particular privileges so this is a broad understanding now where is it that the conflict with india starts your question was about you know how tibet is a bone of contention between sino indian relations so after this background i would say that you know in 1951 a 17 point agreement for the peaceful you know negotiation was signed between china and tibet now in the 17 point agreement basically there are certain terms of autonomy which china has to respect vis-a-vis tibet now the tibetans often claim that that agreement was actually also coercively signed they forced the dalai lama to sign the agreement but i would say let's actually you know be a little generous to the chinese and say that agreement was not coercive even if it was not coercive the fact is that that agreement was violated by the chinese so this is something that we need to you know understand a little better what is the 17 point agreement and why do we say that you know the chinese actually violated that agreement so basically when we talk about terms of autonomy you know it's basically you know the chinese what were those 17 points what did they look like so basically it said that you know the tibetan people the local people shall accept that the pla the people's liberation army the chinese army can be within tibet they accept that you know there's a common program of the chinese government they'll accept that blah blah these were fundamentally some points that basically said that you know the chinese will also recognize you know the tibetan uh, you know government within china to have a fair deal of autonomy on a lot of matters however what eventually happened was that the chinese actually interfered within the autonomy of tibet they started interfering with their religious freedom they started interfering with you know their administration in so many multiple ways which was a violation of this agreement that the chinese hold to be you know so sacrosanct supposedly so after that particular agreement was violated in 1959 you referred to the tibetan uprising so a revolt up, you know erupted in the capital city of lhasa the capital city of tibet which is lhasa and you know that was also because the chinese actually they 
asked for you know the dalai lama there was a certain ceremony that was to happen a celebration based on a tibetan religious you know ceremony and in that the chinese basically made a demand that the dalai lama should not be accompanied by an armed escort so this led to speculation among tibetans that you know the dalai lama may actually be abducted by the chinese therefore in that particular scenario the dalai lama actually made a flight to india and the chinese actually feel that india violated the famous one treaty agreement you know the cornerstone of non interference in each other's affairs by accepting you know the dalai lama on indian soil and the fact that the dalai lama's flight was assisted by the cia also further added to chinese apprehensions vis-a-vis you know according to them india interfering in their supposed international internal affairs but from the indian standpoint rightly or wrongly the british had been engaging with tibet as you know a separate entity from china on many occasions the privileges were retained by tibet tibet itself had close ties with india and the indian position till date is that we accept tibet as a part of india we don't even particularly give any status to the tibetan government of exile we don't officially recognize that to be the real government of tibet or anything of that sort however we do accept that there was a threat to the dalai lama and on human rights grounds we have given refuge to him his government in exile and a lot of other things so this is the context in which you know tibet has to be understood now the point is that when india asserts its claim over arunachal pradesh india basically is saying that the agreement tibet had signed with british india determines the mahan line at the same time we don't accept that tibet was independent or is independent to make such a claim we accept that a vassal state could have done it but any russian convention comes in between so this further complicates affairs also because arunachali people identify themselves as indians and therefore the indian state is morally obligated to keep them within india so this i think is the cornerstone of understanding where tibet fits into the larger picture of you know sino indian relations and uh, it is very important that you know when you ask me how should where should india stand on the tibetan question you know there are allegations that you know india has been supporting the dalai lama especially after coming to india has become tibet has had a long military history despite being a buddhist country i mean it's not surprising japan as a buddhist country was involved in the second world war yeah so over here the deal is that tibet in fact has a long history of wars with nepal expansion its wars they had a huge empire as i mentioned but the dalai lama went back to the buddhist you know not back to the dalai lama started emphasizing the buddhist notions of non violence especially after coming to india and especially after studying gandhi so the dalai lama never endorses violence against the chinese state having said that you know there are tibetans who do believe in violence against the chinese state uh, there are allegations that you know other than tibetans being inducted in the indian army there are also tibetan militants or terrorists or whatever term you want to use depending on your context uh, wouldn't call them terrorists perhaps because they are not targeting civilians but tibetan militants targeting the chinese state or fighting the chinese state have been believed right from nehru's time to have had some degree of support from india that that is the chinese allegation 
and the you know the allegation was also that maybe on pressure from the soviets who also didn't get along with china since khrushchev's time or you know on pressure from the americans the indian state has been complicit in you know contributing to some degree of destabilization of tibet that is the allegation that said the chinese have been flooding hand chinese into tibet they have not respected the local autonomy of tibet they are undermining the language and religion and local culture of tibet to a great extent they are they are not giving freedom to people to the tibetan people who want to still follow the dalai lama they are still being suppressed in fact the chinese want to replace the institution of the dalai lama with some tibetan monks who relatives are in the communist party of china so you know there's students who are tibetans so there is and the chinese state because it's there's no democracy there it's been a lot more repressive than india ever can be in history despite any communication blackout or anything whatever allegations are made against india china is definitely a lot lot more repressive so tibetans have suffered tibetans have issues with the chinese state which are very genuine but now where should india stand on this the deal is that you know internal security concerns are there for india also visibly there are allegations of the chinese supporting nationalism at least for a long time there are allegations of the chinese supporting insurgencies in northeast india which have taken civilian lives as well across across ethnicities and especially people from mainland india who are living in you know who have roots in parts of mainland india but even have been living in northeast india for generations they get targeted from time to time so on the internal security matrix of china alleges that india is interfering in tibet india also has allegations of its own now putting this together the fact is that the dalai lama himself since he doesn't ask for outright secession uh, the argument that you know india should actually demand that china must not accept tibet as a part of china china may hit back by actually saying okay we don't accept so many regions as a part of india in the northeast they claim arunachal pradesh but they don't claim those other territories then in fact you know when the issue of sikkim was resolved i'm sure you'll ask me about that also and i'm sure you'll at least ask me about buklam in the context of sikkim too this comes up that you know the understanding that china reached with india in rajpais time about sikkim accepting sikkim as a part of india that was also because rajpais strongly reaffirmed that tibet is a part of china that india recognizes tibet as a part of china so i don't see any reason why you know we can make noise in human rights circles about tibet we can talk about the fact that many tibetans who are dissenting against the chinese state don't feel safe there they have come to india as refugees so on and so forth you can do a soft power campaign a human rights campaign against china you know when they trouble us but beyond that i don't see anything else that you know the tibet card i don't think beyond the point and definitely i don't think india and china need to play provocative games with each other of course china has been playing certain provocative games in recent times there is a history to it there is a context to it which we can discuss but yeah tibet is a very very important issue and a lot of average indians who cheered the abrogation of article 370 you know despite the abdullah accord basically giving that provision a certain semi permanent form i don't think they can you know be very jumpy about the violation of the 17 point agreement by china or the withdrawal of some kind of autonomy of tibet by china you know whether india was right in revoking article 370 or not is not something that is in the scope of this discussion 
that's a very separate discussion to have but yes in this context it must be understood and appreciated that tibet is a part of china as per india and while human rights you know noise can be made by india a campaign can be run to you know criticize china over tibet uh, it doesn't go beyond that we shouldn't venture into the territory of wanting to you know actually promote tibetan independence at least openly so this is very crucial to understand because a lot of indians are very sentimental they think tibet was absolutely a sovereign country like nepal or whatever in china just came and invaded it and you know india must stand with the tibetan people because the chinese are so bad uh, it's very appealing sentimentally it appeals to your jingoistic sentiment but it doesn't really take us uh, very very far and also i would like to raise this one point since i made a comparison with kashmir somewhat that you know in the context of ladakh for example we referred to aksai train and the raja of kashmir now the british jammu and kashmir was a part of the british held indian empire it may not be directly governed by the british there was a king there and but that king also joined the chamber of princes in new delhi under the viceroy he used to bow before the viceroy so when certain kashmiri separatists today they i'm not talking about pakistan's claims that's another tale and i don't want to digress too much but when some kashmiri separatists today say that kashmir has historically never been a part of india there are people making such claims from kashmir uh, that is absolutely an outlandish claim because uh, forget about you know they say that you know akbar akbar conquered kashmir and integrated it into india firstly that we akbar also defeated rana pratap and he integrated rajputana into india so should we say rajasthan was never a part of india before akbar and that's a very preposterous contention and the fact is even before akbar whether it's rajasthan or kashmir india didn't often have political unity but at times when it did kashmir very often used to be a part of pan indian empires even before akbar under alauddin khilji under before that you know under the mauryas under ashoka ashoka established the city of srinagar for that matter so this is an important point to note when we are talking about ladakh so yes now another point that can be made is whether kashmiris feel indian or not has india you know been appropriate in its conduct in kashmir that is a separate discussion but the fundamental legal and historical background of you know india's claim over kashmir this particular point advanced by the separatists holds no water and we can I'll, we can have another interesting you know podcast on kashmir and pakistan that's another tale but yeah so this is about this yeah thank you for those insights you provided uh, so this discussion doesn't end here we have another part of this discussion lined up for you till then thank you for listening to jsi podcast Thank you.